I don't have a big ego in this. I really just want to get someone as extraordinary as Keith, who mm. is a big folk hero, mm. onto the page. The way to get him onto the page is to get him talking. Hello, and welcome to the third act. I'm Catherine Fairweather. Most ghostwriters are invisible, but James Fox is different, sharing the credit for the autobiographies of two of the great cultural icons of the 20th century, Keith Richards and David Bailey. He honed his talents as a feature writer with a compelling and elegant turn of phrase and a nose for narrative on the Sunday Times and Vanity Fair in the glory days of long-form journalism. His evocation of the lives of the privileged expat Kenyan community in white mischief was turned into a film. He lives amicably next to his ex-wife, Bella Freud, and their grown-up son in North Kensington, where I am pleased to drag him away from his forthcoming book project to chat to me at Orion's about luck, losing his bloodlust and nearly losing his life. James Fox, it's wonderful to see you here. It's been an age since I last saw you, I think, pre-pandemic. And I want to go back to your very uh, successful career as a, as a, I guess, a ghostwriter. Is that what you're called? Are you a ghostwriter? I, sp- I, sup- I suppose so, yes. yes. It said that you're not a ghost, really, because you share the bylines, don't you? Yeah, I'm not really. I'm, I'm quite an unghostly ghost. I'm pretty sort of prominent in these books. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I have done now two published ones. The Keith Richards and the David, and David Bailey. Bailey. And one I did with Dave, Damien Hurst, which hasn't come out, but may come out eventually. Why, why may? Why, not, why are you not more positive about it coming out? Well, it, no, it will eventually. Damien had a sort of hiatus in his business and wanted to stop because, you know, the story would, would be different, and mm. indeed it will be different. Mm. So we're going to take it up again. In fact, we are, I think, taking it up slowly, but there's no date or announcement, but that's just, it's mostly done. So that's a third and I've got another one I'm working on now, which I can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> How tantalising. I mean, it's, it's an interesting profession, isn't it? But you, you once described it as being like a tailor. You're, you're cutting a wonderful suit for someone. But isn't it more like being an actor? Because you have to get inside someone's shoes and walk around them to get their voice right, to be credible as them, because you are writing in their voice. Is, what would you compare it to? It's more like just what you said. A tailor doesn't really work. Uh, imagine making a suit for Keith Richards. <laughs> it's, it's listening. It's, it's uh, almost ventriloquizing. And to get the tone, to get the voice, that's the, that's the aim. And um, that was my aim with Keith, who's a very good storyteller. So you've got to get it in his voice and in his idiom and make sure you get that right. So it's to do with cadences and rhythms. And in fact, with Keith, um, the test was that I read the whole book out to him out loud uh, before when I'd finished. He didn't read and he just listened to me. And that's how he heard if anything was sounded wrong to mm. him from a sort of musical point of view, mm. almost rhythm or whatever. Mm. Which is quite interesting. So that, yeah, what you say is is true. But you're you're a brilliant imitator. You're a brilliant mimic. If you spend enough time listening to someone, do you think you'll you can basically conjure the essence of someone's personality? No, I'm I'm not Rory Bremner. I did. (laughs) I do these things only about only for people I like to try and sort of 
bring them to life or or have have fun you know it's it's to do with just liking people's idiosyncrasies and the way they say mm. things um but i think i i did it because i had a when i was very young um i had a bad stammer and i couldn't actually say things so i listened i must have listened really carefully amazed and in awe of people speaking fluently <laughs> and wondered how they did it and um i think i picked some stuff up like that because of the the difficulties i had i think in sort of talking and did that cure you of the the stammer the, the no I, I don't know what i don't know what cured me of my stammer but it disappeared is that why you turned into a writer because you can you know, obviously you're not going to stammer when you're writing well actually no it was it was completely the wrong thing when i was um started off as a journalist uh the first sort of major job i had was on the manchester evening news and i still had a stammer i mean it's incredible to think back how i actually managed this because you had to f- phone in your copy to a copy taker that's right and that's not good with the stammer the first edition was 10:30 in the morning <laughs> no one's got any time um i think i don't know i cannot remember how i got round that i must have just done it you know nothing like a deadline yeah i think it's such good training for a journalist though that the, the phoning in the copy the cadence of the sort of spoken word it's so good for for writing succinct copy isn't it rather than going off on tangents all over the place you were actually forced to be clear yeah and there were rules uh the manchester evening news you couldn't use the word the or a to to start anything you could use the word manchester that was it okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um well let's start at the beginning you are actually more american than you are english although you have such an english wit but um you are more american really well by birth my father was american and my mother's family all come from virginia so i'm a south of the line i'm afraid mason dixon most okay, well. and ireland you know mm. and you're you you're quite top draw aren't you really i mean you're attracted to ruffians and uh, rock and roll but actually you're frightfully <laughs> posh. I'm not posh at all. You are your well isn't your great aunt uh, what she was Nancy Astor. Yeah, she was my great aunt. She was wonderful. She mm. was excellent. I think of her often because of the the plight of women still in the House of Commons in Parliament still pretty rough. Uh she was the only one there at that time. First first uh woman to take her seat. and you know she was tough but she talked about the intimidation and the, and I I admired her for all that yeah she was great you went on to write i can't remember which way round did you write white mischief first or the langhorn sisters i wrote white mischief first uh, i wrote white mischief as a result of being on the sunday times um it, it was a story that i knew about and it came out of that it came out of you know writing about it then so that came first The unresolved Then, murder of uh, Lord Errol. Yeah. Of Lord Errol, yes. Mm. And so, but you you didn't have any connection, personal connection, with the protagonists in any of that story. No, I didn't. I didn't have any attachment or connection with those colonials at all. Um, I I just <clears throat> jumped into this extraordinary post-war pool of last remaining survivors of the colonial sort of settler world. Mm. and wrote a story about them. The story of white mischief straddles two sort of major blocks of time. One is the 20s when all the sort of remittance men and people were using it as their sort of playground 
and some serious settlers as well, of course. And the post-war or wartime and sort of post-war and 60s and so on. So it had two halves to it. Mm. And the extraordinary thing is that this very morning I received a royalty check for white mischief <laughs> for £234. I was thrilled. So it's still still selling. Still selling. Seems to me there's a sort of thread or a theme that runs through everything you write or the people you're attracted to writing about or in their voices that there's a kind of element of anarchy or excess. Do you do you see that or not really? Yeah, I see your point. I mean, there were the characters in Kenya were quite extreme. And the moment I saw this and heard them and went out there, I could hear that these voices were going to look extraordinary on the page mm. because they were so extreme in a way. They were so separated from reality. They were talking about another time completely and certain sort of entitlements and things that sounded completely dotty from the outside world, but also rather charming. Mm. And... Um, so there was that. There was there was that about them. Tell me about your. You were lucky enough to work at the Sunday Times in its glory days under Harold <coughs> Evans, when proprietors gave their creators sort of freedom, free reign. Very very different from our times now. Would you Would you actually recommend your son, for instance, go into journalism? No, my son. Um, as of four days ago, sent me a thing saying he'd got a piece on the front page of Stanford News. And I thought, oh, no, no, please, <laughs> you're going to starve. But the great days of the Sunday Times, I was incredibly lucky to be hired in those days. I mean, I consider that the, the great moment of journalism, certainly of photojournalism. We had unlimited money and therefore it attracted all the talent. We had the best writers, photographers, huge photographs spread across two pages, masses of space, no, no ads, and the places that we went. Um, yeah, Chad, you we went, went to... We went to Chad, we went to Vietnam, we went, went all over the place. And then, of course, I, what I realised was the way you get your copy into a magazine like that is to go out with Don McCullen because you're definitely <laughs> going to get the space. <laughs> Well, he considers you his uh, university. So he, he said he was lucky to travel with people like you and Chatwin because he learnt so much. I mean, he left school at 13, so travelling with you was his education. I didn't. I hardly knew anything myself, so I don't know what he picked didn't up. Didn't you go to Eton? I did go to Eton, yes. That is true. So you, you, went from, you were born in Washington and you were educated in uh, Washington? No, I was three. I left. My parents got divorced and I came over with my mother when I was three or four years old. Um, old enough to remember the monument and the cherry blossoms, but little else. So then you had a British education? British education. I went through the usual sort of um, initiation of boarding schools from the age of eight and then public school. Mm. Did you hate that? Well, let's say I was, I'm not unique in, um, <laughs> in thinking that I took part in an enormous scandal, which was mm. the sort of these paedophile institutions, including my own in the Berkshire Downs. It was horrendous. Uh, the first bit of it, those prep schools, I mean, we didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I mean, you know, appalling. And then I went to Eton. Um, so you're all survivors, really. I think we are. Yeah. You know? And people are writing books about it now. It's it's yeah. actually an incredible. It's it's a big scandal, and and it's very English because it's cover up, cover up, cover up, and everybody covered up. The authorities, nobody 
uh, although not dissimilar to things that went on in Ireland and so mm. on, you know, the church covering up. But um, looking back, it's it's not good. We live in an extraordinary age of reckoning now, don't we? Everything's being uncovered and society is being remodelled. And, and as it's being uncovered, it's also being um, concealed. Yes, that's so true. <laughs> that's the weird thing, isn't because it? Because there's a book, I can't remember what the Guardian writer did, uh, detailing that uh, the sort of dumping of colonial documents in the North Sea, you know, by the Navy, I mean, masses and masses of documents. Recently? Yeah, not so long ago especially East Africa and all that sort of period when we did behave very badly and so on. So that's an astonishing thing. You know, I, as a journalist, know that if you face up to your past and so on, it's much better. It's better mm. for the next generation. It's better for you. Mm. And you don't get people wanting to pull down statues of Rhodes. Or and, you, and you don't get people trying to trip you up because if you were admitted to all your... Um... Yeah, your mistakes, your misdemeanors, and your and no one can really point a level finger at you, can they? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So from Eton, you then uh, did you go to university? No, I didn't. I I didn't go to university, and um, I wanted to, and I went up for an interview at a New College in Oxford, and I I flunked the interview so badly that I I now look back and think that was the best thing I ever did <laughs> because. <laughs> I wasn't really cut out for academics. I wasn't very good at, at exams. Deadlines were clearly what was required, what was um, indicated for me at that time, not long essays about Milton. Or <laughs> you needed a deadline to galvanise you. It, so it seemed. Mm. I mean, I did quite well, you know, with the deadlines. Mm. Um, I didn't do very well with the exam. I got as far as getting this interview, and they asked me a few questions about Shakespeare, and blank you know <laughs> so i furiously turned my back on you know england and then africa. i went to to nairobi to the daily nation and then i went to south africa and worked on the rand daily mail which is a incredible crusade sort of a proper daily broadsheet but a anti-apartheid courageous editor there lawrence gander and then i was employed by Drum Magazine, which was this oh, yes, incredible African magazine, yes. which, which gave me and, and us there access to all the townships and the whole thing. We had it to ourselves, which is a source of extraordinary mm. journalism and stories mm. and, and, of course, uh, dangerous and under the eyes of the authorities. And so I was eventually booted out. And How long back. were you there for? I must have been there for a couple of years. You know, and were you always looking over your shoulder? Were you? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, South Africa at that time was a bit like East Germany. There was a, the, you know, the the equivalent numerical equivalent of the Stasi. Um, mm. Every office, every place was full of special branch and so mm. on. And I was sort of pursued myself. I mean, I, a young journalist. So was this the early seventies? This was the late sixties, sixty-seven mm. and sixty-eight. I was going to say, come to the idea that there's always an era or a time where you feel you were at your peak or an era that defines you. And would you say that that was the time when you felt at your energetic peak, at the height of your powers? Or No, it was really at the, at the Sunday Times. Mm, um, later, yeah. Yeah, with, the, with, that, with that magazine form, that long-form mm. magazine. 
journalism, mm. which I think is the highest form, really. If you can do it, it was done on Vanity Fair for mm. 30 yes, years, you know, was, and yeah. it attracted all the best writers. Yeah. And they became, therefore, the sort of... Uh, Rock stars. Yeah, but not so much that. was they, they became the sort of newspapers. They were breaking the big stories, mm. like the savings and loan scandal was broken mm. in, in Vanity Fair. So to learn to do that long-form journalism, which is very difficult, mm. to have the space for it, that's what really sort of got, got me going. Mm. And all my best stories came out of the Sunday Times, really, at that time. And when you went on to write Keith's autobiography, Keith Richards was a friend of yours, wasn't he? I mean, I met Keith because I was on the Sunday Times and I played a guitar. I had done since I was 12 and I was obsessed, really, with playing the guitar all those teen period. So I knew how to play it. And... I couldn't work out how Keith played, and I wanted to find out, because his sound was unlike any other sound. How did he do this? You know, mm. That was the backdrop of our lives, was that Keith Richard riff. You could, mm. one chord, you could sort of... So I, um, nobody had interviewed Keith, because he was either too frightening, or they were all mesmerized by Mick Jagger, or mm. whatever. So I tracked him down and, and said, I want to write about the way you play the guitar. And he said, oh, you must certainly tell you about that, said Keith. And and so I wrote this piece called The Sound of the Stones uh, in the Sunday Times. And he's the first time anyone had actually written about Keith and how he does it. He was the machine. He was the, you know, the real source of the music. And um, whenever he came to London, I would see him and we kept in touch. I also discovered doing that piece that he was a, a great storyteller, and he talked about other things. He talked about other musicians, music, how in awe he was of his predecessors and so on. So he had a kind of cultural hinterland. He had a real culture and a great intelligence and, a, and believe it or not, an incredible memory. Mm. And it's interesting God, yeah. that, that he produced this book with me and Mick tried to do it and, and can't do it for some reason, can't get that same storytelling thing about his past. And so did he then go on to suggest that you wrote a book together about his life? Well, I kept at him every time I saw him and said, not about me. I said, you've got to get these stories down. You tell these stories of the great days of rock and roll and how it all started. Your trips to the South, you know, way back when you were kind of almost a boy band. You've got to tell these stories. And eventually his manager, Jane Rose, who'd become a friend over the years, said, maybe now's the time. And... So we sat down and started talking. But James, why did you want to write it? Why didn't you just suggest that you wrote the biography? The biography wouldn't have been nearly as interesting. I mean, if I, I don't have a big ego in this. I really just want to get someone as extraordinary as Keith, who mm. is a big folk hero, mm. onto the page. The way to get him onto the page is to get him talking. Mm. If I wrote a biography, you know, remember Philip Larkin said, I start a biography from the beginning because I have to try and avoid the word born. I can't bear reading that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to avoid all that. He was born, you know, I want to get Keith to talk about Dartford. That's the the way in. And so that attracts me much more. I don't have any feeling of, oh, I should have been the author of this thing. I didn't. Richards is quite cavalier about death, isn't he? He treats it as as a sort of uh, occupational hazard that you you best avoided by pacing yourself. 
does he see himself as a as a codger? No, I don't think he does. But he he's very aware of his. It sounds like a contradiction, but he's very aware of his kind of health and survival. I mean, he gave up taking hard drugs because he thought it would get in in the way of his music. You know, most people have to go to rehab, not mm. Keith. In fact, Anita said about Keith that she didn't think he was an addict. So he just gave this up. As he also reduced his drink down to, you know, quite quite little because he wanted to keep playing music. That is the most important thing. And that takes quite a lot of willpower. Mm. And it says a lot about Keith. Mm. The music comes first and everything else comes on. Yeah. And, and you've had some intimations of mortality. Have you been... In the last 10 years, not well some of the time. I mean, dramatically oh, well, unwell. Well, I've had a few scares. I had a, I had a brain hemorrhage about 10 years ago that wasn't very pleasant. So to I'm very lucky. Least. I'm lucky to be here talking to you. Guys. You are. We are lucky to have you here talking <laughs> to us. Well, I was told I had a 10% chance for, by two separate doctors of survival. So, you know, I, I hit that particular roulette. And did that sense of surviving something enormous change your outlook on living? It did, because my son, Jimmy, um, who's now 21, was about six or five at the time. And I thought, remember the priorities, you know. Um, Mariam Darbo did a whole film about people who'd suffered from brain hemorrhages. And they did this interview with me and Jimmy and Bella, my ex-wife who was there. And... Uh, they said, has this changed? I said, yes, I look at things differently. Instant sense of joy if I see a river, some trees, uh, weather, whatever it is. And then I said also, whenever <laughs> I'm with Jimmy, and if Jimmy ever says, will you play with me, Dad? I always say yes. And I looked around and said, I do, don't I? <laughs> he sort of luckily nodded. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky for you, yeah. Lucky for me. And so, And that stayed with you, did it? Jonathan Miller the other day said, uh, I don't really not, don't mind dying at all. I really don't want to give all this uh, pain to these other people, you know, my dependents. That's the only thing I regret about mm. it. I'm bound to do it, whatever mm. happens. <laughs> so you're, you're pretty sanguine about endings and the end. Well, I got very close to it, and I can tell you it's pretty commonplace if it goes like that. It's just, oh, here we go. It's the lights going off. It's literally like that. That's, that's how I felt when it happened. Really? Yeah, it's a matter-of-fact thing. Although most people don't have, many people don't have that thing because they have pain or they have mm. long, drawn-out things or they're, they're not on their feet or, you know, whatever. So that's all very different. I see that Nikki Haslam on his tea towel this year, Nikki Haslam is also one of our podcast guests, by the way, but um, he says that nostalgia is common. Now, are you given to nostalgia? Well, even though it's, I have to admit uh, that Nicky's called it common, um, <laughs> it's an honour to be called, anything that Nicky says is common, is an honour to embrace, I think, to get onto a teeter. Uh, yes, I have, I do have a sort of Thomas Hardy-esque kind of longing for the past and, and, and memories. I can trigger it very easily. And uh, I'm going through a period of sort of wishing the 70s were here again before I think too much about, you know, the worst side of, mm. of the 70s, because we sort of owned it. We had more control. We sort of, you know, 
Did you have more control and you felt you owned it just because you were really young and maybe that feeling of invincibility comes from youth? Yes, I think it was. And also, we, you know, our music was so great mm. and, we, and we ran the world through that and everything was cool. And also, somehow, things happened. We, you know, our protests helped to end the Vietnam War, mm. you know. Forget that now, you know, that, that's mm. not going to happen anymore. Mm. So is it, is it quite easy to succumb to gloom on behalf of your of your child who's 21 or 22? Well, yes, I am, of course. I'm, I'm alarmed. I mean, um, simply because of the incredible pressure on the planet and how that's going to squeeze everybody. And, how, you know, that's, that's a very obvious thing to say. I have just written, I've just done an interview with Damien Hurst about a wonderful artist called Ashley Bickerton, who was um, a New York artist. And... He does a lot of themes of sort of stuff washed up on the beach and all this kind of thing. And is thought to be somebody who is speaking for our responsibility for the planet. Not at all. Ashley Bickerton said, actually, I couldn't care less about our species. They're going to go, you know. The planet will survive. It'll throw us off. Uh, think that way. And so I'm interested in the flotsam that we've left on the mm. beach. Mm which will be there forever. That is a very interesting vision of the future because I was just going to ask you what your vision for the next 10 years is for yourself. For myself, um, survival, I hope. I'm very, very concerned and I think a lot about and I read a lot about creeping fascism, creeping authoritarianism, the, the sleepwalking into losing a democracy in so many places, um, how easy it, it is, you know, at my age, I didn't live through the 30s, but I am old enough to know how this process works. So I, I'm very concerned about that. And I feel almost that I've joined a kind of resistance against this sleepwalking, um, which you see everywhere. You know, you see it in America, you see it here. So that keeps me going. And what, but what can we do to not walk, sleepwalk into all of this? I mean, there must be... Bells have are to, ringing all over the place. We just have to be alert. Emily Maitlis said a really interesting thing in that lecture, McTaggart lecture that she gave the other day. She said, one of the things we can do is we've got to establish a, our own shorthand, our own slogans um, to recognise the sort of populist playbook whenever we see it. Because they've got slogans, but we haven't. You know, mm. we've got a few like othering, you know, and so on. Mm. And one of the best I, is uh, this guy called Timothy Snyder, one of the people that I follow, Harvard professor. He's coined this phrase, sado populism. And sado populism is you promise that you're going to restore the coal mines of West Virginia, you know. You have no intention of actually carrying this out. You promise you're going to restore the North. You actually have no intention of it. Or Brexit, you, actually none of these things will happen, and you know it. Mm. Uh, and when everyone gets disappointed uh, and angry, you just turn that anger elsewhere. It's someone else's fault, it's not ours, and so on. Mm. Sado-populism, very, very useful phrase. <laughs> very useful phrase. And what would you tell, finally, knowing at your grand old age of 76, what would you tell your 21-year-old self, knowing all, all the lessons that you've learned, what would you say to reassure that stammering 21-year-old? Very difficult, that. It's very difficult. Um, because when I think of so many kids nowadays who suffer from anxiety, mm. I would like to 
think of a way that I could deal with the anxiety that I had to at mm. that age, or how they can now. And I think it's to do with really trying to separate fantasy from reality, you know. Okay. Take a reality check, you know. This is false information getting into your head. Keep calm, you know, think, think calmly about it. Try and separate the wheat from the chaff. Something like something simple like that, so as not to get overwhelmed, because there's a lot of overwhelming stuff out there now, you know, especially with social media. So you're right, James Fox. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Thank you, Catherine. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too. If you've enjoyed today's show, you can hear more episodes by clicking follow wherever you're listening to this or simply searching The Third Act on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. And if you think your friends would love to listen, please tell them about us. This episode was produced by Pete Norton and Holly Fisher and made possible by Orion's, luxurious residences that are redefining later living in the heart of Chelsea. I'm Catherine Fairweather and I can't wait to join you next week for another episode of The Third Act. <laughs>